Welcome to the New Books Network. Most dictators no longer rule by fear, but instead by spin. That is the contention of Sergei Guriev, who has co-authored Spin Dictators, The Changing Face of Tyranny in the 21st Century. So welcome to you, Sergei Guriev. Thank you very much, Owen, for inviting me. And uh, maybe we could just begin with an understanding of what fear dictatorship is. I mean, I think we all really know what it is, but probably the, the current leading example would be North Korea. Yes, uh, fear dictatorships were the majority of non-democratic uh, regimes in the 20th century. And these were the regimes similar to modern North Korea, where dictators would terrorize their citizens into submission, where they openly use mass repression, and they would not actually pretend to be liberal or illiberal Democrats. That was the prevailing model of the previous century. But now, as you correctly say, there are minorities, so there are very few pure examples of fear dictatorships, like North Korea, you can also add Syria. Uh, Modern uh, Venezuela is also a fear dictatorship. Venezuela of Maduro, that is. Venezuela of uh, Chavez was uh, different. And when you then make this distinction between those uh, governments, and we should say that Stalin and Mao would come into that category as well, when you make the distinction with spin dictatorships, let's run through what a spin dictatorship looks like. Obviously, the first point is it's not a democracy. That's correct. I think it's important to emphasize that in political science definition of democracy is very clear. So Democrats are not those who call themselves Democrats, but Democrats are the ones who change leaderships and policies according to outcomes of free and fair elections. And of course, non-Democrats are the others. So, for example, in today's Russia, there are still elections. In Russia, 10 years ago, there were elections. In today's Hungary, there are elections. In many regimes around the world, elections are not free and fair, but there are multi-party elections. There are some independent media. The repression is not open. It's, uh, if anything, deniable. And the leaders don't terrorize the public. They say, we are popular. We actually use the same uh, methods and uh, tools as uh, liberal democracies, such as elections, exchanges with independent media. We allow for some civil society. We are open to international cooperation, cross-border movement of people, capital and technology. So in all of that, they try to blend in with uh, modern democracies. And that's the huge difference. The main difference is not how many political parties they have. The main difference is they want to pretend to be Democrats. They want to pretend that they are not using open repression. They manipulate information about what they are. Yeah, so so let's take you know, Putin, Putin's Russia as an example. There are opposition parties. They are allowed to exist. They're allowed to run. It's just that they are prevented from flourishing, right? That's correct. Uh, Today's Russia is a bit more of a fear dictatorship. The big transformation happened last year, 2022, when Putin moved from spin dictatorship to fear dictatorship. But before that, for 20 years, Putin has built a system, one of the most sophisticated spin dictatorships in the world, where you would have opposition parties. 
some of the opposition leaders would be so impactful that Putin would have to suppress their activity to harass them, but he would always harass them in a deniable way. For example, opposition leader Boris Nemtsov was killed pretty much in front of the Kremlin, but Putin always said, it's not me, and even pretended to investigate this assassination. The opposition leader Alexei Navalny was put in jail, but not because he was a political prisoner or a political opponent, but he was put in jail on the cooked-up charges of embezzlement. And that's a typical spin dictatorship tool. You harass your opponents without recognizing that they're political prisoners and they're political opponents. You call them crooks. You use non-political accusations against them to prevent them for, uh, from winning the elections. And so that's the idea. That's how spin dictatorship address the issue of political challengers. And of course, you also allow for some independent media. You don't allow them to reach out to majority of population. And then you say, well, nobody reads them, nobody watches them. But that's not because I harass them, but because people don't like to watch them. And so this is an, a, a typical narrative that Putin has used. He was not the first spin dictator in the world, but he perfected, he has perfected many tools of spin dictatorships. Yeah, but let's take this issue of political killings, assassinations. So, yes, Putin has killed some of his opponents and and obviously denies that uh, it was the state that did it. But surely that's... I mean, Stalin would have denied, wouldn't he, that he had these huge numbers of people killed on his orders. He would have said, you know, that that wasn't true. Or, Or would he... Am I wrong about that? Would he have sort of boasted about it? He has boasted about this, and actually you would have those uh, court hearings where opponents of Stalin would have uh, forced confessions and would say, yes, I was conspiring against Stalin, yes, I was a Japanese spy, yes, I was an English spy, yes, I was a Polish spy. So it was completely different. The forced confessions were public, and their role was actually to instill fear on uh, potential opponents. The same you can actually see in Gaddafi. Now, Gaddafi is an interesting the dictator of Libya is an interesting uh, case because he started when spin dictatorships were common and actually the uh, most important model of non-democratic regimes. And then he lasted for almost 40 years to reach this uh, epoch, uh, the era of spin dictators. So he became a dinosaur without actually noticing that. But once he said very proudly, there are some other leaders who kill their opponents in car accidents and try to deny this. No, this is not what we do. If we execute somebody, we execute this person on television. And so Gaddafi simply formulated this distinction between spin dictatorships and fear dictatorships. He was proud to showcase the violence because he wanted this violence to instill fear on the opponents. Yeah, and what's very subtle about what uh, you're describing Putin as having done is rather than accuse his opponents of treason or conspiring against him, he, he, he'll accuse them of embezzlement, of, you know, seeking personal advantage in some way, some sort of you know, self-interested crime, which, which, you know, many of the population might, might come to believe. That's exactly the case. And so the idea of spin dictator is to use spin to create a narrative and make sure that majority of population buys your narrative. For that, you need to silence the dissenting views. And you have to censor them in a quiet way as well. And this is the ingenuity of the strategy. If you censor the information about censorship itself, 
the majority of population may not realize that censorship exists because they never get information that censorship exists. The information about censoring independent media or opponents is censored itself. So that's the idea. Majority believes that their information is more or less correct. And this information which comes from the government or from co-opted private media or from media owned by friends by friends of Putin, tell them Navalny is a crook. Navalny is not a political opponent. And that's exactly the case. Yeah, I mean, these, these informal, unstated red lines for the media are very, very effective, aren't they? I mean, I'm most familiar with Pakistan, where this system exists. And it, it, it's never stated what you can and can't publish or not, except for a few extreme cases like blasphemy, maybe. But generally speaking, criticism of the government or the army, it's not stated. But everyone knows where the lines are. And a few people who step beyond them will be killed. But you don't need to kill many to discourage the others. That's that's true. And one example is, is modern Singapore. And Singapore is a pioneer case of spin dictatorship. And uh, when I talk to my colleagues in uh, Singaporean universities and I ask them, how do they know what to teach uh, in political science courses, in uh, introduction to Singaporean politics, they say foreigners are never recruited to teach uh, on Singapore politics. And uh, Singaporean citizens know exactly how to teach that. And this is the case of uh, co-optation. So Singapore is a rich country, so they use money rather than targeted and deniable repression. Instead of threatening people, they use self-censorship in the way that if you don't do the right thing, you lose a good, uh, well-paid job. If you do the right thing, you stay, but you cannot say the thing which is correct. And uh, the other thing which Singapore is using is libel laws, defamation laws, uh, which uh, dates back already to the very first years of Lee Kuan Yew where he would use those laws to sue opponents in independent media and to bankrupt them. And that's a typical tool of choice. And recently that's also been using, used in 21st century, that's been used by regimes like Putin's regime. One of the striking facts you relay in your book is that Lee Kuan Yew, who you're talking about and who you see very much as a pioneer of, of this sort of method of, of rule, he, he was appalled by Tiananmen Square because he just thought, that's not how you need to do this. Exactly. And he actually lectured uh, Chinese counterparts that it's not effective. He would have done it differently. We talk about this in the book, but I can also tell you that uh, it's also my experience in all non-democratic countries. People want to learn from Lee Kuan Yew. So we talk in the book how Kazakhstani leaders invited Lee Kuan Yew in the beginning of this path of creating the modern Kazakhstani state, which is a spin dictatorship, very sophisticated and exciting, very sophisticated and successful spin dictatorship. So they were excited to invite Lee Kuan Yew to teach them how to do that. And he came and, and he told them. But it's also true that in many countries around the world, they want to mimic a Singaporean um, approach. Now, there is a twist here. Uh, with all his uh, non-democratic tendencies, Lee Kuan Yew strongly believed in rule of law and in using English judiciary system. He also believed in fighting corruption. And this is the aspect of uh, Singaporean regime that many non-democratic leaders around the world don't want to copy because they want to remain corrupt. They want to build chronic capitalism rather than uh, capitalism with rule of law. And so when we say that uh, Singaporean model is copied, 
it's copied in, in terms of using spin dictatorial approaches, but not in terms of fighting corruption. I want to ask you about the economics of all this in a moment, but just first, that you've got a very good example of uh, Anwar Ibrahim in Malaysia. Can you just you know, remind us who he was, what happened to him at first, and what happened to him later in terms of how the, you know, the, the powers that be shut him up? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story when the Malaysian regime was, of course, a regime uh, which is, again, a spin dictatorship, uh, where you had a one-party rule for a decade, and they actually did a lot of tricks. Uh, they faced difficulty when internet arrived, and there, there is actually research showing that the ruling party had a very difficult time when... Uh, the opponents started to use internet, and so they had they had uh, difficult issues. Now, Anwar Ibrahim, as you rightly said, had a very specific uh, trajectory. He was a prime minister. He actually was harassed by uh, by the system. Again, no, he didn't go to jail as a political opponent of the of the regime. He was put in jail for sodomy. This is a typical story of a spin dictatorship where you use non-political accusations to harass your political opponent. And that was uh, the long-lasting leader of uh, Malaysia, Mahathir, uh, who actually made sure in 1998 uh, to fire Anwar and put him in jail with this Internal Security Act and uh, and uh, the accusation of sodomy in the uh, very, which seemed to be non-political accusation. Now, he spent several years in jail. He actually was arrested in 1998, and he was finally released only from solitary confinement in 2004. It's been uh, difficult for, for him, and that was not just one sodomy conviction, and sodomy was, was an uh, illegal act in Malaysia at that point. Right. So you're saying that that, well, that was a mixture, really, wasn't it? It was this clever technique of not using a political charge, but nonetheless trying to affect his standing in, in the public. But he did, they did end up jailing him. So in a sense, that's the old-fashioned way of doing this. Sort yeah, of but on a non-political, non-political yeah. accusation. That's the idea. Now, he was part of the system. At some point, he was deputy prime minister to then prime minister Mahathir Mohamed. And then he initiated this reformazi movement, the pro-democratic movement, which eventually went pretty far, especially with the support, as I said, of Internet, which helped to circumvent the system of censorship and propaganda. But he was put in jail on non-political charges, and Mahathir was saying, this is not because he is uh, a political opponent to me. This is not because of his starting reformazi movement. This is because he is a homosexual. And so that is illegal in our country, and that's not related to his politics. You, you've made the distinction between uh, Stalin killing you know, many, many people and Putin killing, or Putin's regime killing, killing a, a small number. Uh, it, it, I, I had this experience after the Romanian Revolution when I, I, I was a journalist there, and I got a crowd of people you know, within a few days of the revolution, about 50 people standing around me on the street and said, how many of you suffered political repression? You know, anyone in your family was jailed or killed or, you know, suffered under the regime uh, in a very direct way like that. And none of them said yes. You know, I was quite struck by it because I, I just thought, well, everyone's frightened. But actually, the regime hasn't had to do that much to frighten them. It hasn't, you know, repressed everyone. It's just frightened them. Well, late, uh, late communist regimes became softer, but it was still very clear that if you do challenge the regime, you go to jail. 
Well, in spin dictatorships, the majority of population doesn't know that. In spin dictatorships, uh, they know that they, they live in uh, imperfect democracies and people who are in jail are not political prisoners. And also the number of political prisoners or political killings is smaller. This is something we document in the book. We collect the data and we show that these numbers are much smaller than even in Brezhnev Soviet Union and for that matter in Romania. Um, and the reason for that is if you have too many political prisoners, it's very hard to hide. And so when you put people in jail, you put them on non-political uh, uh, accusations and uh, when you kill people you do it quietly and only a couple of years ago after poisoning of Navalny we discovered that Putin has actually poisoned several political opponents with this Novichok poison sometimes successfully sometimes less successfully but until 2020 or 2021 he was denying adamantly he still denies that but now it's too late because we even have a movie called uh, Navalny uh, shortlisted for Oscar, nominated for Oscar, which tells you with all the evidence the story of uh, Putin's government using Novichok poison for Navalny and some other people. But the idea was to use it quietly. Yeah. Now, there's just a few other techniques I'd like you to describe, which are quite uh, sort of cunning uh, techniques used by spin dictators uh, and very much along the lines you're describing. And, and, and one of them is to bankrupt the opposition. That's right. And this is, a, again, a typical um, spin dictator technique where you say, we have a defamation law. If you criticize me as a government official or as a citizen, I can challenge you in court. And it just so happens we have this law that if you say something wrong and the court agrees with me rather than with you, you have to pay a lot of money. And then suddenly you become bankrupt and you, you cannot do politics because you have no money to start your campaign. And that's a typical tool of choice. And again, there is nothing, seemingly, there is nothing political about this. I'm not telling you you cannot run because you're against me. I'm telling you you cannot run because you have no money and you have no money because you lie, not because you are you're against me. And we just see how it's happening right now, for example, in uh, Turkey, where the most popular opponent to Erdogan, the mayor of uh, Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, is banned from running. I hope that this decision will be overturned, but he's banned from running because he criticized the Electoral Commission. Now, why did he criticize Electoral Commission? Because when he was elected, Electoral Commission counted the votes, and then Erdogan said, no, we need to recount because it's incorrect. So they did, they did the second election, and that time he won. But he is correct to criticize Electoral Commission because Electoral Commission did have irregularities. But since Electoral Commission is part of the government and you have a law that you cannot criticize the government, it's just uh, the defamation law, once again, uh, something copied from Singapore. And so in that sense, this is typical that you don't say uh, Kremlin Mamaglu cannot run because his party is banned. No, he cannot run because he violated some technical law. It's, it's one of your yeah. points that, 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 that the, the dictator uses regulations and sort of small things in order just to undermine bit by bit their opponents. So in, in, in Turkey, uh, even Kurdish politicians can run. Even if you're in prison, you can run for president. And actually we saw in the last presidential election that the Kurdish politician uh, Demirtas actually got 10% of the vote running from prison. 
well, if he uh, were a real threat to Erdogan and he was on the verge of getting 50%, he would probably be harassed differently. But in principle, he can run from prison. And so you, Erdogan can say, we have a free society. But uh, one of the things I, I would remind, the, uh, remind in this respect, and we talk about this story in the book, is his brother, before him, was a popular Kurdish politician. And he was actually arrested, not because he was against Erdogan, but because he faked his medical certificate to avoid army, army ser- service. And that's a typical uh, spin dictatorship tool. So again, it's not political, it's just uh, you're a crook who fakes a document. So that's why we are going to arrest him. I'd like to ask you about another aspect of of, uh, dictatorial rule. So Stalin had his cult of personality and he wasn't alone in that. There was a time when Putin seemed to be using similar techniques with all those pictures of him hunting and fishing and all that stuff. There seems to have been less of that recently. Where does the cult of personality fit into fear dictatorships and spin dictatorships? Right, it's a great question. It's, It's a different cult. So we talk about this. So basically the cult of personality of Putin was a bit like cult of personality of democratic leader, cult of celebrity, if you like. Like uh, Obama was very popular and you have pictures with Obama everywhere. But it's, it was not imposed on, on uh, uh, society. It's not like uh, the schools must have uh, his portrait in every classroom. And the same was true in Putin's Russia. In Putin's Russia, you don't have to have a, a banner with Putin everywhere. You don't have to have uh, signs with Putin in the street. No, and it's still not the case, which was different from Stalin. Stalin was everywhere. But you have this cult of a competent, popular leader. And so the way Putin is presented or has been presented until the war was similar to the cults of popular democratic leaders because the job of Putin was not to mimic Stalin. The job of Putin was to imitate Obama or other or Macron or some uh, other democratic leaders who are popular. Now, Macron is no longer that popular, but the idea was actually to say, I'm a Democrat. And the people who uh, publish pictures of me are people who publish pictures of the popular leader they actually like. Now, let me actually tell you the story of uh, electoral results. So in Soviet Union, the Communist Party would get 99% of the vote. This is not what spin dictators want. They want more or less 70%. Erdogan is okay with 55%. So for them, it's also true that they don't want to have 90 or 95% because it looks non-democratic. They want results which are seemingly democratic. And we also quote Lukashenko. Now, Lukashenko is not a spin dictator. He's a fear dictator. But occasionally he would actually say, you know, we had this election and I saw that I got 90% of the vote. I told my colleagues, we need to reduce the percentage because it doesn't look democratic. We need uh, 75% rather than 90% because we want to look better than 90%. I know that I'm very popular. I know that people love me, but that's too much. What, what about, uh, you just mentioned celebrities and celebrity culture comes into this, doesn't it? I mean, because, I mean, obviously, Western democratic politicians very much like celebrity endorsements, but I think spin dictators like them even more, probably. Would that be right? That's correct. Uh, we are talking to you, we are talking in February 2023. We just had Vladimir Putin given a 
order of friendship to Steven Seagal. That's a typical uh, Vladimir Putin who tries to surround himself with celebrities. And in previous years, he would bring all kinds of celebrities to Russia, play piano to them, sing with them. And again, the idea is to show that I'm not isolated. I'm not Kim of North Korea. People shake hands with me. People come because they know that maybe I'm an imperfect Democrat, but I am a Democrat and they are not ashamed to talk to me. And that's crucial because spin dictators want to benefit from open borders. They want to bring in capital. They want to bring in technology. They want to benefit from globalized economy. And for that, they need those endorsements of foreign celebrities and also former leaders. So Tony Blair has been an advisor of Kazakhstan's president Nazarbayev. Schroeder, former chancellor of Germany, is still speaking in support of Putin. And he's played a very important role in supporting Gazprom's uh, activities in Europe and in particular in building Nord Stream uh, gas pipeline. So this is exactly what Putin does. He tries to recruit enablers or friends or lobbies in the West. First, it shows that he is not to be ashamed of. Second, they help him in projecting an image of a popular leader. And if corruption comes out, Putin comes back to his voters and says, look, there is corruption in London and Berlin as well as in Russia, so we are the same. We are the same in perfect corrupt democracy like Germany or England. Yeah. I mean, it is important to say that party funding scandals in Western democracies are endemic and serious and constant problem. But what what is the position with spin dictators gaining personal wealth, not necessarily just to enjoy the luxuries of life, but to, you know, by support and by celebrity endorsements. Well, that's very important. And we did see that uh, uh, leaders like Putin, but not only Putin, would uh, accumulate wealth to use it outside of the country to recruit celebrities, to solicit their support. And that ranges from cinema stars to lobbies to PR agencies to consultants. That's very, very important. And... uh, For spin dictators, it's important to create an image of popular democratic leaders at home, but also abroad. And these are the friends, celebrities, lobbies who help to create this image. Why? Because otherwise, uh, global civil society will try to sanction those regimes because these regimes are non-democratic. They quietly, but they still physically kill their opponents they deniably but still use censorship and uh, uh, repression. And, of course, organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, are aware of that, and they lobby for sanctions. And so you need to recruit counter-lobbies, celebrities, lawyers, former uh, ministers of Western countries, uh, uh, Western parties, to stand up to this human rights movement. It's presumably significant that a lot of these leaders are nationalists and they're they're drawing on nationalism for support, you know, Russian nationalism, uh, Libyan uh, nationalism, as opposed to what was there before in terms of the uh, different tribal divisions in in that country, Hindu nationalism in India. Uh, How important an aspect of their pitch is, is is the nationalist pitch? Well, it's important. It's much less strong, they say, nationalism of Nazi Germany, right? These are the regimes which pretend to be democracies. 
democracies don't really have ideologies. The ideology of democracy is to create good living standards for the voters, right? So if you are a spin dictator, you pretend to be a Democrat, you can use uh, something like an anti-liberal democracy, anti-Western sentiment. You can also be uh, anti-progress in the sense that you say that we are true Europeans and modern Europeans are decadent, uh, um, gender-fluid societies which went too far in postmodern values. But if you look at uh, Putin or, say, Orban, they do nationalism and they do conservatism, but it's really not as strong as fascist or Nazi regimes. This nationalism is much softer and also it's pro-European in the name only. So they actually say that we are true Europeans, we want to protect European ideals of 19th century. So this nationalism and this uh, conservatism is really a very sophisticated narrative which uh, wants to stand up to liberal Democrats, to human rights defenders, to protectors of minorities, to protectors of uh, civil and political rights. So nationalism is just one and only potential weak ideology these people can use. It's no longer an ideological regime of 20th century. They cannot use communist ideology. This is dead. Totalitarian ideologies cannot be used in 21st centuries because they are not popular. People want to live in democracies. People want to live in regimes which at least pretend to be democracies. And that's why spin dictators pretend to be democrats. Let me ask you about uh, the economics of this, because Lee Kuan Yew, who you've mentioned quite a lot, I mean, presumably part of the reason he was able to do what he did was that you know he, he, he increased the wealth of his population so significantly. And, and it's often said in China that you know everyone knows the deal. The Chinese Communist Party can, can stay there as long as it delivers these fantastic economic growth rates. Uh, how, how difficult is it? Let me put it like this. Can you have a successful spin dictatorship with a declining economy? Well, it's harder. It is exactly true that it's easier if you have a lot of money, you can co-opt a lot of people. When you run low on cash, you have to occasionally use uh, uh, limited, targeted, deniable repression. As I said already, if you use uh, a lot of repression, it's very hard to hide it. So you want to use limited repression in order to pretend you're Democrat, in order to pretend you are not using repression. And so that is always hard. So it is much easier if you have a lot of money, you can bribe people into submission. Whom do you need to bribe? You need to bribe people who understand what's going on and who can communicate to the rest of the public. This is the challenge for the spin dictators. So for economic growth, they need educated, creative classes. But these are the people who have tertiary education, who understand how the world works, who travel outside, understand how America and Europe work. And so these are the people who need to be silenced so they don't convince the rest of the population. And for economic growth, you need more of these people. On the other hand, silencing them is harder. And so if you don't have enough money, this job quickly gets out of hand and the regime may democratize or regime can actually turn back to 20th century model. In the book, we already talk about this example of Venezuela, where Chavez had a lot of money because oil prices were high. So he could afford the spin dictatorship model. And then Chavez dies. Maduro has much less of a charisma. Oil prices go down. Maduro doesn't have money. 
he doesn't know what to do and he just goes back in time to the violence-based model. And this is the transformation which happens in some cases and we just saw it in Russia as well, where economy was stagnating and so Putin decided to go back in time as well. If you are Likuan Yu and you can build a prosperous economy, you can actually use the money you get for co-opting journalists, for co-opting university professors, for co-opting IT entrepreneurs, and all of that works well. It seems to me that many of the techniques you describe spin dictators using were first sort of conceived by these Americans who studied public opinion in, in uh, you know, what, starting about 100 years ago and, and developed these very sophisticated techniques, most of, which, most of which went into consumerism, right, and encouraging people to, to buy stuff, but are being used elsewhere to uh, support uh, particular political regimes. Do you, uh, how do you relate all this to the development of you know, techniques to manipulate public opinion? Well, that's exactly true. And the study of uh, public opinion, of mass opinion, has started in the U.S. And the whole uh, concept of spin doctor comes from societies like uh, that of the United States. And that's why we, when we say spin dictators the first time in the book, we say like spin doctors in democracies, spin dictators want to manipulate public opinions. So they, that's why we call them spin dictators. And that's exactly true. They copy those ideas, they develop them, they're very sophisticated. And one of the things which we also say in the book, there are always democratic leaders in countries like United States or, say, Italy, who want to become spin dictators, but so far they've not succeeded. That's very important, that Trump probably would like to become a spin dictator. Berlusconi probably would like to become a spin dictator. It's just the institutions in those countries stood up to the test. Maybe Trump will come back. Maybe Berlusconi will come back. Who knows? They are not young people, but who knows? And then we will lament this in the years to come. Hungary was a democracy and Orban was an anti-communist politician until he changed himself, became an opportunist and created this model. And now he's a perfect spin dictator. In many countries, democratic institutions actually withstood uh, this pressure. I wonder if you reflected at all on how Western democracies can combat spin dictatorship, because you've got these insights into how these spin dictators are, are working it. And presumably that, that helps you understand their weaknesses. I mean, one thing they're very nervous of, it seems to me, is NGOs. You know, they're, they're often very anxious about foreign financed NGOs being based in their capitals and promoting different ideas. And, you know, quite often move to, whether it's Orban or Putin or whoever, move to close down any foreign influences like that, so liberal influences like that. So does that suggest that NGOs are an effective method against them? And, if, and what other methods might there be? Oh, in the book is structured in the following way. First, we describe what spin dictators are. Then the half of the book, actually, most of the book is describing how they work, all these tools we've just discussed. Then we also talk about why we think they've emerged in recent decades. And indeed, the last chapter is exactly what should be done, what the West should do regarding the spin dictators. And so uh, one of the things I would mention, just to be optimistic, what we are talking about is a very sophisticated set of uh, regimes. We can become desperate saying, well, we live in this uh, scary world of spin dictators. Still, I would say, first, they are not as violent as uh, all dictatorships, as fear dictatorships, and we should celebrate this. And second, uh, 
spin dictators want to pretend Democrats. So that means they don't have a good idea. They recognize that the idea of democracy is more powerful than other ideas. So we should not be desperate too much. That said, we should not be complacent and we should fight those regimes. Now, how do we find them? We talk about uh, several things. First and foremost, we say that since spin dictators need to pretend to be Democrats within those countries, you do have active opposition. We do have civil society. We need to support those civil societies. We need to reach out to those uh, civil societies. And we need to con uh, co continue the engagement with anti-regime uh, forces, be it uh, legitimate businesses, be it NGOs within the countries which uh, protect minorities or political and civil rights, be it educated classes that criticize uh, the government. The West should be in touch with those uh, parts of those societies. That said... You have to make this engagement adversarial towards the regime itself. You need to recognize the non-democrats for what they are, non-democrats, dictatorships. You should not pretend that these guys uh, can get away with violating human rights and breaking democratic checks and balances. So you should call them what they are. You should consider them what they are. And so you, you should stand up to them. You should also stand up to their enablers in the West. And you mentioned the foreign financing and so on. Well, Putin finances political parties in Europe. Putin finances campaigns against green movement. He did make an effort to make sure that Europe keeps buying Russian fossil fuels, for sure. He made a campaign against sanctions against Russia, for sure. And so here we need to maintain transparency. We need to take a high road in the sense that we should not break our own laws. And if we have freedom of speech, freedom of expression, we shouldn't defend it. But we should also introduce transparency. If somebody speaks on behalf of Putin, we should tell the public that, uh, listen, this is the party which has been financed by Putin. This is a former politician who's in an employment for Putin. And so this is important, for sure. This is something we need to do. I'm wondering about the low road as well, to be honest. I mean, so, so let me give you an example. It's clear that the Russian government from 2016 decided to try and undermine American confidence in their electoral systems. And they've done that. And there are now significant numbers of Americans, I mean, millions, tens of millions of Americans who don't believe the results of their elections. It's been an incredibly successful disinformation campaign and it has significantly weakened uh, the United States. My question really is, why, why doesn't... Uh, the, why don't the Western democracies do that back? I mean, why aren't they in Russia planting false ballots of votes to cast doubt on the uh, results that Putin enjoys and, and to actually hit back with some of the same techniques as he's using to undermine his support? Well, Western democracies do that in the intaken high road. They try to support electoral observers. They try mm. to support independent media. They try to support... Russian diaspora, which still broadcasts to Russia. And that, I think, is high road. Uh, now, there are ways in which the West can step, uh, stand up to Putin's attempts of interference. And I'll just give you an example. Right now, we have a lawsuit in the U.S. where Dominion Systems, which produces the vote counting machines in the U.S., is suing Fox News. Right? Fox News, as we now know from this investigation, has been knowingly supporting false claims of Trump campaign that Dominion systems cannot count votes correctly. And there is a lawsuit, and we'll see where it leads. But it turns out 
that internal exchanges within Fox News show that uh, anchors of Fox News knew these claims are false, and yet they were talking about them on air. And I think the viewers of Fox News have a right to know that the anchors knowingly lie to them. And that's important. And Fox News should pay for this because they actually damage the reputation of Dominion systems. And so all of that, all of that is within the reach of the, what uh, we just called high road, within the rule of law, within Western democracies. But I'm also, I, I'm also thinking that at some, in some cases we need to introduce new laws to defend ourselves against interference more actively. That is very important. You know that some of Trump collaborators actually went to jail and then uh, Trump pardoned them. And these were people who worked with Russian oligarchs, people who were paid by Russian government or uh, oligarchs close to the Kremlin. And so that, of course, is a shame that Trump has managed to pardon those people. Well, this is within uh, American law, but at least we know that these people violated American law. Yeah, no, I mean, I, t- I do take your point. But I, no, I, mean, my, my, I guess what I'm saying is that if you're trying to deter Putin from uh, undermining confidence in the US electoral system, you know, you can use la- lawsuits and all that stuff, and that will make some difference. But probably the one thing that would actually stop him doing it is if he thought there was a significant chance that it would be done to him. Uh, the difference is Putin is still in elections. And the West is trying to train electoral observers to help them, and that's good. But uh, but you, we know that in the U.S. elections uh, have not been stolen, and Putin is just lying. And I think it's important to reveal that Putin's lying. How do you see the future of this? I mean, do you think it, it's a model that clearly in the first part of the century has has you know been very successful? Do you, and yet, as you you make the point that it, it's not sufficiently confident to admit what it's doing, it's it's always painting everything in democratic terms. Uh, do you think spin dictatorships have a future, or, or or will they be found out? So it's a great question. We don't know because it's a recent phenomenon. We don't have enough data on this. But just an educated guess is that uh, eventually some of these regimes will go back to what's uh, like uh, North Korea today some of these regimes will democratize. Basically, the main conundrum they're facing is the one that I mentioned. To remain popular, they need economic performance. And economic performance today is different from economic performance in the 1930s, when you need a labor force that can read and write. Today, for economic growth, you need a labor force that has higher education, university degrees. And these people are too critical. So as you increase the size of your educated class, class of university uh, degree holders, you have a difficulty because it's becoming too expensive to silence them. And so that is a challenge that is already a problem for Chinese leaders. Uh, We'll see how it plays out. And they prefer actually to attack education companies and big tech companies. So it's a hybrid regime. It's a digital fear dictatorship, but there are elements of spin dictatorship there as well. So we'll see what happens in China and that's of global importance. But other regimes will have to make a choice either to divest a bit and maybe potentially democratize. And we've seen democratizations in, say, Ecuador or Armenia. But uh, maybe uh, some of them will just go back in time. So it's, it's, hard, it's hard to predict the future because we don't have enough data from the past because this is a reasonably recent phenomenon. 
But I would say that this is almost a Darwinian response to the challenges of modern era of globalized economy, technological progress, cross-border media. So the dictatorships evolved from old star, old species to the new spin dictatorship species. But the new species is not here forever. It's a temporary fix. And I remain an optimist. Since democracy is, a, is an idea which remains universally popular, I think eventually we'll see more waves of democratizations. That's that's uh, my optimistic conclusion to this conversation. Yeah, well, it's it's a very interesting book because there are lots of books out now trying to understand what's happening and what's caused uh, what's happening. Uh, but you've definitely identified something which, you know, helps reveal the nature of the change that we're all experiencing. So uh, we're very grateful for your time talking us through it and helping us understand this this sort of little glimpse you've given us of of the way you know some of these political systems are evolving. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Owen. Thank you.